Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are going to start tonight in chapter 2 of the book. The knowledge of the sovereignty of God is a tremendous comfort. It goes a long way toward making us feel better when life goes topsy-turvy. For those of you from Australia, when life goes (laughs) pear-shaped, it's good to know that God is sovereign and that he's in charge because that does give everything purpose. When we get to chapter 3 this evening, that is exactly what Solomon is going to argue that everything has a time and a purpose. And if, in fact, everything that happens on earth has a designated time and a designated purpose, that can only occur if God is truly, genuinely sovereign. So when we say God is sovereign, we're saying that nothing happens outside of his knowledge, outside of his permission, and outside of his jurisdiction. Technically, then, we like to use the language of, uh, well, things went wrong. You know, when things go wrong, but the fact of the matter is, things don't really go wrong. They go in a way that we don't prefer, but they all go in accordance with God's purpose, and God's purpose is never wrong. So even though sometimes things go belly up or go difficult for us, even those difficulties in life have a sovereign purpose. And we've talked about this through the years when talking about sovereignty and suffering or sovereignty in prayer. And I have emphasized many, many times that it is good to know that God is sovereign before the suffering gets to you. It's hard to figure that out once the suffering is on you. But if you know that God is sovereign, then you can understand Paul saying things like, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. And so the idea behind Paul's thinking of suffering and sovereignty is that the suffering that enters our life has a function, has a purpose. We're going to talk about it again coming up this Sunday as we continue through Romans 4 because Paul is going to argue that the trials of life produce a patience in us. It produces a triedness in us. That God is trying our faith until it comes out like fine silver. And the way that he tries us is by taking us through the various struggles of life so that we become truly, genuinely dependent on him because things happen in our lives that we just don't have any control of. I have oftentimes pointed out that every really horrible thing that ever happened in my life, I usually didn't see coming. Usually I was just traipsing through life happily and then something bad happened (laughs) just recently just hey knock myself out for no good reason I, I didn't go to bed knowing that was going to happen but these things happen at the same time every good and great thing that has ever happened in my life I didn't cause it wasn't up to me I didn't choose it just wonderful things have happened to me in my life and so if I didn't see the bad stuff coming and I didn't see the good stuff coming, then I'm not in charge here. I am a recipient of whatever God brings my way. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes ultimately comes to. Solomon says that there is a a futility to life, vanity of vanities. And in chapter 2 here, he's going to list the things that he attempted Last week in the introduction to this book, I talked about the Stoics and the Epicureans, and I told you that those were two different philosophical approaches 
to the lust of the flesh. What are you going to do about the cravings of your flesh? Well, the Stoics would say you tamp it down. You don't give it any, any attention. You just hold it down. But we kind of know that doesn't work because the more you try to hold it down, the more obstinate it becomes and the more it rises up and the more you think about it while you're busy trying to keep it down so you're never really free of it. The Epicureans would say, eat, drink, be merry, satiate your flesh. That's the way that you'll stop thinking about and constantly worrying about the, the lusts of your flesh is to just give in to the lusts of your flesh. Well, Solomon is going to say, I tried them both. And his conclusion is, it's all vanity. In the end, it's all me trying to solve my problems. And so he's going to, in chapter 3, turn to, but everything that happens in life has a time and a purpose. It has a reason, and it is only the knowledge of the sovereignty of God that allows you to get through this life in an enjoyable way, knowing that God has given you this time, this place, this work, these tasks, because you have no control and no knowledge of what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen after you're gone. He's going to argue you could spend your whole life working real hard and building all kinds of things like he did and amassing great wealth to yourself like he did. And then you could die and everything you owned goes to somebody else, and they could be an idiot. <laughs> Just because you built up everything and amassed everything, and you were wise, and you were smart, and you were a good master builder, when you die, who knows what's going to happen to what you did. The next person who gets it may be a fool. That's his word. Okay, I went with idiot. He's going to go with fool. So again, it comes down to well, then how do we just enjoy the day for the day? How do you enjoy your work because that's the work you have? How do you enjoy the food that's in front of you because that's the food that you've got right now? How do you enjoy the blessings of this day right now? How do you, to use a very modern word, how do you live for the moment? How do you appreciate the moments of your life as it goes forward? Well, it can only be done if you recognize God has given you these things, these blessings. And that when you go away, whatever happens to them is up to God. Whatever God does with it, not your problem. Because God has given you the opportunity to enjoy life while you're here. And everything is under God's dominion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the theme of the next two chapters. Now, when we get to chapter 3... Don't break into a Pete Seeger song. No, <laughs> nobody doing Roger McGuinn for us. Nobody singing turn, turn, turn. But you're going to recognize chapter three because it became a very popular song back in the 50s and 60s. Chapter two of Ecclesiastes. He's now going to describe what he's done to try to satiate himself. What he's done to try to satisfy himself. For a while he thought that laughter was just madness and that pleasure for his flesh accomplished nothing. So he went the way of the Stoics. And he also went the way of the Epicureans and he said, I'm going to test pleasure. I'm going to check out all the pleasure I can get in life. This is, after all, a man who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He's going to brag about that, too, and say, I even tried that. I, I tried everything there was to try. And the end of it is vanity. It's all vanity. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it, too, was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. So he's saying, I, I tried to hold on to my mind and I figured the wisdom was to satiate my flesh with wine and maybe then that would bring the cravings of my flesh down. 
And I also decided to see how I could take hold of folly, foolishness, just wild activity, until I could see what good there was in the sons of men or for the sons of men to do under the heaven the few years of their lives. So he's really setting out to prove what is of any real value in this life. We're only on the planet for a short while. So what is of any value? Is it suppressing your flesh, suppressing your wants and desires? Is it concluding that laughter and folly is just madness? Or is it to satiate your flesh and to give yourself every happiness and every food and drunk with wine? And he says, all of that I tested to find out what has any value among mankind. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. And I had home-born slaves, servants that were born right in his own household. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men. Many concubines. Then I became great and I increased more than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. There's the Epicurean approach. Everything I desired, whatever my flesh wanted, I satiated my flesh with everything it wanted. And this is a man who was among the richest of men and was a king, and could get anything he wanted, any time he wanted. So he decided to satiate himself with everything that his flesh desired. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. So the reward that he was getting at that moment for all his labor was that his own heart, himself, he felt good about what he did. He said, that was my reward. The reward for all the work I've done and all the things I've built and all the things I've grown and the gardens I've planted and the ponds that I've made and the fact that I didn't withhold anything from myself the reward I got for all of that was, uh, I felt good about me. My heart enjoyed me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and all the labor which I had exerted, and behold, it was all vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. In other words, outside of feeling good about me, what did I accomplish with all this? In the end, like any person and certainly like any king, I don't think he was ever satisfied with what he had done, with what he had built, with what he had accumulated. You know, it doesn't matter how much stuff we get in life. There's always room for more. I always want more. Some of the greediest people I've known in my life were also the richest people. And I remember thinking oftentimes, you know, if I had what you had, I'd be putting my feet up and going, all right, well done me, I've got it. But if you have stuff, you want stuff. And the more you satiate your flesh, the more your flesh wants to be satiated. And the end of it, says Solomon, is just vanity. 
It's just blowing after the wind. It's just meaningless. And he's going to talk about why it's so meaningless. Starting in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly or foolishness. For what will a man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? In other words, I did it. I did it all. I did everything. I didn't withhold anything from myself. If it's capable of being done by humans, I've done it. So what are the other people going to do after me? They're not going to do anything new. Not going to do anything unique under the sun. They're going to do the kind of stuff I've already done. So I'm thinking about wisdom and madness and foolishness. Verse 13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly or is better than folly as light is better than darkness. It excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I know that one fate befalls them both. See, you've got on one hand a complete fool. You've got, on the other hand, the wisdom of Solomon. And they both die. They both end up in the grave. They both end up in the same place. And when you die, you get to take nothing with you. When you die, you stand before God with empty hands. And God is going to be merciful, hopefully, to you. But what about the fool? What if he's merciful to the fool? What if you both end up eternally redeemed because of the goodness and the kindness of God? And you're the one that worked the whole time. And this guy's an idiot. And he's getting in just like you're getting in. Can you see why Solomon's starting to say, everything I did, everything I worked toward, everything I accomplished, it's all folly. It's all just emptiness. Because in the end, we all go to the grave. It's, it's the same for the wise man and for the fool. So then I said to myself, verse 15, as is the fate of the fool, that's also going to befall me. So he can look out on the streets and see the most foolish of men, the most unwashed of men, the hungriest of people, a per person who's accomplished absolutely nothing. And he can look at everything he has accomplished. And yet it occurs to him that that man's fate and his fate are exactly the same. They're both going to the grave and they're both going to stand before God. So then what did you really accomplish through all your work, through all your exercise? through all the stuff that you did in this lifetime, what you accomplish? It gained you no eternal benefit. So you can see why he would say it's all empty vanity. As the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been so extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Why did I go through the trouble of being so clever, becoming the wisest of kings who could build all these magnificent things and becoming so rich and having all these flocks and herds and having all these women and having, in the end, that guy dies, I die, and we both end up in the grave. So really, what did I accomplish by doing all that? Verse 16, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man the same as with the fool you've probably known some foolish people in your life most people can think of foolish people they've come across in their life I can think of several people who at some point in my life they crossed my path and they just seemed foolish and you know what I can't think of any of their names I might be able to think of where we were when our paths crossed, or maybe the event, but the truth is, I don't really remember them that well. So if people don't remember the fool, what are the chances they're going to remember the wise man, the rich man, the accomplished man? Have you ever driven through downtown Nashville? There are some impressive old buildings down there. Grand Central Station. Oh, what a great old building. Who built it? 
We don't know. Yeah, we're all, I don't know. What great accomplishments he had in his lifetime. We don't know who he is. We don't remember. We don't remember the foolish people. We don't remember the wise people. We don't remember the accomplished people. Because with each generation that comes and goes, that generation is so busy worrying about their own lives right here and now that they don't have time to worry about what you did back then when you were here. So Solomon recognizes that. It says, for there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. It depressed Solomon. Once he realized the emptiness, the vanity of everything, Naturally, it made him depressed. It reached the what's the point stage. Have you hit that one yet? Why do I have to get up and go to work again today? Why do I have to do the same old thing? Oh, here come the kids. Oh, they're going to want stuff. Oh, yeah. they. Yeah. Okay, what do you guys do? What's the point? Sorry, <laughs> Yeah, life can become very repetitious after a while, and you reach the the depressed what's-the-point stage. And that's exactly where Solomon got and what he wants to emphasize, because there is a built-in futility and vanity to human life if this is all there is. If this is all there is to human life, then even what you accomplish in this life has no lasting value, and people aren't going to remember you for it anyway. And you're going to die. And the guy who did nothing is also going to die. And you're both going to end up in the grave. So that makes you think, what's the point? Why even try? Why get up? Why do anything? As Solomon said, why was I even wise? Why did I even do the work? Because human life left to itself on its own is absolutely empty. So what's the answer? Well, in a moment, he's going to tell you the answer is that God gives things purpose. And if God gives things purpose, then the things that you do in life have value and have purpose. Even if nobody on the planet knows it or recognizes it, God himself knows it. So let's work our way there. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave this planet. And after I've done all this work and put in all this labor, somebody else is going to get it. Somebody else is going to enjoy it. Look at verse 19. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. That's why half hour ago I said he might be an idiot. The people who get what you've got after you're gone may not value the work you put into it in the least. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. This, too, is emptiness. This, too, is like blowing at the wind and thinking you can have any effect on it. And, by the way, Don't neglect the other meaning of the word vanity. This is all self-centeredness. This is me worrying about and thinking about my own accomplishments. And then after I die, maybe a fool gets it. And then, I well, it's still me thinking about me. That's still, what about my work? What about my accomplishments? What about everything I've done? Me, me, me. He recognizes that it's all vanity. It's all emptiness and it's all self-centeredness. And it's all pointless. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun, and this too is vanity. Therefore, 
I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored for them or with them, this too is vanity and a great evil. So he said, I've done all this work. I've done all this labor. I built up this kingdom and all these buildings and all these forests and all these herds and all these flocks. and all this. I've built all this. And then ultimately it's going to go to somebody else who didn't put in a lick of work. I did all the work and he's going to get it. And this is one of the few places where he says it's vanity and evil that that guy who puts in no work gets stuff. Shall we talk socialism for a moment? (laughs) Or shall we just move on? Verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better, nothing superior to this. There's nothing preferable over this. There's nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. In other words, you can't obsess over what's going to happen when I'm gone. You can't obsess over, I did all the work. This is all mine. And if I give it to somebody else who didn't put the work in, that's evil. He said, all you can do in the end is recognize that your labor is good labor. Do it well. Which is very similar to New Testament concepts like whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. That gives purpose to everything you do. If the work that you do that becomes the redundant work every day, if you do it instead of doing it for your boss or for your promotion or for your paycheck, if you start doing it as unto the Lord, then you recognize that it has purpose because it's a form of worship toward God. It's a form of recognizing God in your life all the time. I think I told you this story before. I met a preacher out in California who... He had a watch that had a little alarm on it that he could set. And he set it to go off every 15 minutes. And uh, if if you're visiting with him, that's really irritating. (laughs) Every 15 minutes, this thing, beep, 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 beep. You know, you just turn it off. After a while, I asked him, "What, what is that about? And he said, oh, that's my reminder that God is here. He said, because... I get busy and I'll forget. And then beep, beep. And I think, that's right, God's here. Oh, oh, suddenly I liked his alarm. Suddenly I thought that's a really good idea. Remind yourself regularly in whatever you're doing, in whatever your hand finds to do, remember God is here. And that gives value to whatever you're doing. So he says... There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? Now, by the way, for us 21st century folks living in Nashville, Tennessee, we lose the impetus, the importance of that phrase, who can eat without God? Because we get in our car, we're driving down the road, we feel a little hungry, we pull into Jack in the Box and we talk to a voice in a box and the next thing you know they're handing us food. And five minutes after we're hungry, we're shoving food into our face. But as Solomon was writing this, and we've talked about this before, the primary thing you had to do every day, this was something you could not skip every day, job one. Find food. You had to find food somewhere because they didn't have refrigerators. It was hard to keep food fresh, meat fresh. And so you had to figure out, how do I eat today? And you're living in the Middle East 
where there were often famines and lack of rain, and it was just tough to find food. Food was your primary job, one every single day. So Solomon also says, to even eat is God, because it was God who would provide food for the Israelites every day. And if he didn't continue to provide rain and crops, if he didn't provide animals, if he didn't provide for them, they did not eat. And oftentimes there were widespread famines throughout that area. So Solomon recognizes that and says, because who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? So if you don't have God in your life, if you don't have God as your reason for getting up in the morning, then indeed, not only is everything vain, everything is purposeless because you recognize the emptiness, the vanity of it all. And human life left to itself is really vain and stupid. I mean, human beings get up every day and do some of the dumbest things I've ever seen. And at the end of the day, they've got nothing to look back on. They haven't accomplished anything. They can't really pat themselves on the back. Human beings are just kind of dopey little pieces of protoplasm running around on the planet. It's only God that gives function and purpose to human life. And that brings enjoyment. That brings the recognition that whatever you're going through, it's exactly what God wanted to take you through. So that's what Solomon is building up to. Verse 26 says, For to a person who is good in his sight, in God's sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. And this, too, is vanity and striving after the wind. He's saying there are people out there putting in plenty of labor, working in the fields. There are sinners who are out there just working, and then they end up having to give it to the people that God wants it to go to. So even their work is empty and vain and pointless. It's all vanity and striving after the wind. Chapter 3. But there is an appointed time for everything. Okay, quick test. What is left out of the list of everything? Nothing. 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 So does that mean then that there's an appointed time to all things that occur? Yeah. I've used this phrase before that God invented time so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. He stretched it all out by inventing time. And over the course of time, things occur because God has appointed times. He is the God of set times. He's the God who told the Israelites exactly when they would do things. And then he gave them feast days, and Sabbath days, and high days, and, and appointed times. God is a God who is on schedule. Jesus came when it was time for Jesus to come. There was plenty of human history before that, but then there was the appointed time. So God is always a God of set times, and as a consequence, Solomon says, there's an appointed time to everything. So when good things happen in your life, that's when we usually say, well, duh. Well done, God. That good appointment on your part. You, you chose this time to give me these blessings. And yeah, great. And, but that also equally means when things go belly up, it was God who appointed that time, that moment to happen right then. I will try not to get too personal. But again, my brothers and sisters and I have all been conversing today. Mom is now doing the morphine in the Ativan, and the doctor said this morning, we're going to let her run her race. They're, they're just waiting now. The, the feeding tube is out. And I can't figure out, after the, all these years that she's been in this home in Moundville, in this little tiny room, I can't figure out why it's taken her three years of suffering and struggling before she's able to leave this world. I look at her, that's my mommy. 
That's a really good human. That's, a, that's a, someone I love, and I hate that she, that she suffered that way for all these years. But then I remember this. There's a point of time to everything. Mom is still here because it's not time for mom to leave yet. Apparently, it's getting closer, but even now. I know I said to you all a few weeks ago when I went to Alabama and came back, and I said, it's any day now. Yeah, well, it's weeks later, and it's still any day now. When's it going to be? Exactly when God wants it to be. There's an appointed time for everything. And there is a time or a purpose for every event under heaven. Every event under heaven. That means everything that happens on planet Earth has a time and a purpose. It's not happened randomly. God is not a random God who occasionally is surprised by what happened. God has never said, wow, I didn't see that coming. What's the phrase? Has it occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God is not waiting to find out what you're going to do. God has assigned the purposes and the times for everything. So then Solomon's going to give us a basic list just so that we know that he's really talking about everything. Everything has a time and a purpose. Like there's a time to give birth and there's a time to die. I think that's what we were just talking about. There's a time to plant. and There's a time to uproot what has been planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give it up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker, from that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which they occupy themselves. And he has made everything appropriate in its time. Do you get it now? He has just said, so then what profit is there to the human, to the worker, in all the work that he does? He started out by saying, I've done all this work, I've built all these things, I've accomplished all this stuff, I've gathered all these things. So what profit is there in all the toil that he does? He has already told you, it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all striving with the wind. But, verse 10 is, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which they occupy themselves. Because there's a time for everything and a purpose for everything, then the tasks, the jobs, the work that men do is exactly the stuff that God has assigned for those people. That's where it starts to have value. And then he can say in verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. So instead of just being vain work, instead of being empty work, instead of being pointless work, it's appropriate work. It's valuable work. It's work that has purpose when you recognize that it's God's work. It's God's purpose. And that God has a time and a purpose to everything. So whether it's planting or digging up what was planted, or whether it's giving birth or a time to die, whether it's a time to kill or a time to heal, tear down or build up, to weep or to laugh, to mourn or to dance, to throw stones or gather stones, to embrace or to completely shun embracing, whether it's searching for something or just giving it up as lost. I mean, he's gone as far as details like that. 
Have you ever lost something and said, I know it's here. I, I know it's here. If I keep looking, I'm bound to find it. It has to be here. And then after spending a whole day looking for it, you go, well, you know what? That's gone. That, that's lost. That's the kind of detail he's talking about and still putting it under the heading of God's sovereignty. If it's lost and stays lost, it's what God wanted. If you find it, if you search for it and you find it, God showed it to you. So he's listing everything from happiness to weeping to building up and tearing down to war to being silent and speaking love and hate, war and peace. He's he's really running the gamut here in order to say that God is in charge of absolutely everything and it is only God's sovereign control and leadership and participation in all things that gives the work of human beings actual value. Left to themselves, human beings who don't know God, all they can look forward to is working their whole life and then dying and really having accomplished vanity. Because no one's going to remember, no one's going to pay attention to the fact that they did it. They're just going to enjoy what those people did. So it is only the recognition of God who has made everything appropriate for its time. That's the only place to find value. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Well, now we're getting some theological insight here, Solomon. It's not only recognizing that God is sovereign over all things and therefore all things have purpose, but recognizing that God has placed eternity in our hearts so that we are looking forward not just to die and go to the grave, but to accomplish what God has given us to accomplish in this lifetime and then die and then go to eternity and then go be with God and be in the place of eternal joy where God will wipe away every tear. That suddenly gives life hope instead of vanity. That suddenly gives us a sense of purpose, desire. Do the things of life that God has put in front of you because you have eternity in your heart. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Really, really interesting. In other words, God is under no obligation to tell you everything. There are folks who want to, in a very Gnostic way, dig into the secrets of God. You read in the book of Revelation that the thunder spoke. And then John was told, don't write down what the thunder said. Which is why I have a t-shirt that says, I want to know what the thunder said. Because God is under no obligation to tell you everything. He's not obligated to reveal to you what he has done from the beginning to the end. You don't need to know the entire divine plan. You don't even need to know what the specific purpose is of the things and the work that he has put in your life. All you have to recognize is God is here. God has put this in my life. This has purpose. A few years back, there was a fellow that started coming around GCA who was, um, let's just say, problematic. And we'll leave it at that. I'd kind of had it up to here, here, think about here with, with this person. And someone said to me very wisely, you know, he wouldn't be here if God didn't bring him here. And he wouldn't be causing you this thorn in your side if God hadn't determined that you needed this thorn in your side right now. And he was exactly right in saying that to me, and so I never spoke to him again. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I said, you can leave my house right now, and how dare you be correct. But it's a fact, and it's a way of looking at life that helps you make sense of the struggles, the trials, even the difficult people in your life. If you recognize that God has brought them across your path for a reason, for a purpose, that God is not random, he doesn't leave things happening purposelessly in his universe. And so he says, he's made everything appropriate in its time, 
He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor because it the labor is a gift from God. So that's kind of the summation of what I wanted to get to tonight. I wanted you to see Solomon's approach to, yes, left to ourselves, the things that we do, the things that we accomplish are purposeless, are ultimately vanity. But once you recognize the sovereignty of God, which is a tremendous comfort Once you recognize that God is in charge of all things and everything and that everything has an appointed time and an appointed purpose and that God is appointing those times and purposes ultimately for your good. That sounds like Paul saying all things work together for good to those who love God, who all are called according to his purpose. It's the same consistent theology all the way through. So ultimately, you have to recognize that God knows what he's doing as he brings these things across your path. And then he's made everything appropriate. He's made everything appropriate in its time and then placed eternity in our hearts. And that is the only thing that gives life any sense. As we talked last week, if we were atheists, I don't know why any of us would keep going. At some point, we'd recognize the complete vanity of life, the complete emptiness of life, and we'd just give up and take out as many people with us as we could get. Because what does it matter? You just die, you go to the darkness, and it's over. Big deal. But only God, only the recognition of God, only the understanding of God and his sovereign purpose can give life joy and can give life meaning and can make you get up in the morning and say God's here and because God's here I'm going to enjoy today's food I'm going to enjoy today's work today's labor I'm going to enjoy the people that God brings across my path whatever the events of the day are I'm going to recognize that for better or worse they're all things God brought into my life And that they all have purpose. And knowing that they have purpose will make them easier to go through. Make sense? Don't you like Solomon's argument? I think it's a great, great argument and a great bit of theology. So that's where we will pick up next week. Are there any questions about that? No questions? We're good? Yes, sir. There is no chance that you're like a lot of people. Okay. But things like the killing of the innocents by Herod or Nazi Holocaust, things like that that are so stomach-wrenching that it's sometimes difficult to see what God has in mind. But you just have to take it on faith. I think that's a lot of the reason that Solomon said, that he put eternity in our hearts, but he didn't tell us everything he's doing from beginning to end. So that there are things like you've mentioned, things like the Holocaust or the slaughter of the innocents, where you say, how does that make sense? I I look at the the modern-day Holocaust that's going on with babies that are just dying by the millions in America and around the world, and I think, how can God allow that? But he hasn't told us everything. He hasn't explained everything. Instead, as you said, we have to have faith that he knows what he's doing. I'd like to suggest one, one reason. Uh, those events make the unbeliever firm in his unbelief. Does that make any sense? It does. And in fact, it made me think of um, what we talked about just this past Sunday about God telling Abram, that his descendants were going to go into Egypt for 400 years, then come back to this land because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet to the full. And so I think that could be what God is doing, 
is making sure that the iniquity of this generation has come to the full. Nobody speaks Amorite anymore. <laughs> that is also true. But there are going to be a whole lot of people who have a whole lot of lives to answer for, and that might be all part of God's plan. He can do whatever he wants with what's his, and we're all his, and so if this is what he's doing with his creation, then that's what he's doing. And the only part that offends us is our human sense of morality. But God's superior sense of morality is that he can do what he wants in order to accomplish the, the building up of Christ and the ultimate glory of Christ's return in judgment. Very so. much like the question, why do bad things happen to good people, comes with the anthropo anthropologic notion that there is good people and because they're good that they should be right. wisdom. But isn't that how the world does think? Yes. yes. The world starts with, why do bad things happen to good people? They because they actually think there people. are good people. And that being good means that they shouldn't have to suffer through right. bad things. And the more appropriate question is always, why do why good do things know? happen to us bad people? Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? So, so our iniquity is going to get even more full? You don't see that happening? I mean, We've got to be reaching the top of the cup here pretty soon. You would think. I mean, I like the joke that pretty soon God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's getting really, really wicked, and I don't think it's to the full yet. I think we're just starting to find out how wicked humans can be when God takes their hand off them. Anything else? And man, wasn't that a feel-good discussion. Aren't you happy tonight? Don't you feel like running out there and hugging people? Up, up, up with people. Come on, sing. All right, nothing? We're good? All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.